0: Today's show is sponsored by Smile Brilliant. If you're like me, you're a bit overwhelmed by all the teeth whitening products on the market. Smile Brilliant has given me some very interesting facts to pass on to you. Fact number one, teeth whitening does not whiten your teeth. It removes the stains and restores the tooth to its natural color. Natural colors vary from person to person, but for most it's an off-white or slightly yellowish undertone. Fact number two, teeth whitening does not damage your teeth, but it does temporarily dehydrate them. Now, when they're dehydrated, the pores in the enamel are open and exposed. Open pores invite acids and sugars, which, as we all know, lead to tooth decay. So, avoid or minimize acidic and sugary substances for at least 24 hours after whitening. Also, avoid staining substances, as the teeth are now more susceptible to restaining during this period. Fact number three, tooth sensitivity is the result of tooth dehydration. When the pores of the enamel are open, the teeth become dehydrated, exposing the nerve to the elements. As the tooth rehydrates, the sensitivity will dissipate. To accelerate the rehydration and curb sensitivity, use a post whitening application known as remineralization or desensitizing gel. Fact number four caps and veneers cannot be whitened because they do not have pores for the stains to latch onto. Prior to having any dental work, you should whiten your teeth, restoring them to their natural color. As the dentist will be color matching to your current shade. Fact number five, the key to tooth whitening is the delivery device. So long as the whitening product is a peroxide based whitener, it will remove the stains. What differentiates one product from the next is the device that holds the whitening agent to the tooth without interruption. Whitening strips neglect the crevices and molars. They slide around on your teeth. Saliva floods the generic trays because they're bulky and they don't create a seal. Oh, and you likely did not know this, but LED lights are novelty items that add no benefit to you. Uh, you need a high-output UV light that's only found at the dentist, so don't fall for that gimmick. If you insist on a light that doesn't work, just go to Amazon and get one for under 5 bucks. The number one whitening device recommended by dentists is the custom-fitted tray. You can have your dentist make your trays for 300 to $600, or you can head on over to www.smilebrilliant.com and use their lab-direct mail-in process for a fraction of the price that you would pay at your dentist. Oh, and if you're one of those who grinds your teeth at night, like myself, you can also purchase Smile Brilliant's custom-fitted night guards, once again for a fraction of the price that your dentist will charge you. So once again, head on over to SmileBrilliant.com and use coupon code AMERICAN for an incredible discount that's available only to listeners of this show. Having said that, here's a great deal for you as well. Cyber Monday is here, and Smile Brilliant has a great holiday special. So once again, go over to www.smilebrilliant.com and make sure that you check out their Cyber Monday sale, which is ongoing until Christmas. Great deals that only come once a year. Once again, that's www.smilebrilliant.com for some fantastic Cyber Monday deals. All right, let's get back to the program. The American History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 13. Pearl Harbor.
1: Are you listening? All you fine boys in your comfortable foxhole, listen.
0: So, welcome back to the show. Now, today we've got a very special episode, and that's a look at Pearl Harbor on the 80th anniversary of that infamous day. Now, there's a couple things here. First of all, I didn't want to do this as just a kind of standard kind of episode about the battle or the attack itself. I mean, we've all had history class, hopefully, and you've probably seen one of the films. There's a couple, Tora, Tora, Torah is one um, a second one is the film itself called Pearl Harbor starring Ben Affleck um, so I didn't want to do that um, so this is more of a an episode that's kind of about the the very last month or so that's leading up to the actual attack if you could say that There's it's a little more than that um, but I think you'll see as the episode goes along And the second thing is that I don't want to spend a lot of time jabbering, which I've just done, because this is a massive episode, and inevitably I'm going to get some negative reviews for going way too long. So let's just get into our time machine and get going. Now to help us go back in time, we have this week's song of the week, which is La Vie en Rose by Edith Piaf, and it comes to us courtesy of the Internet Archive. So we'll see you in just a minute.
1: Quelque chose, il est dans mon cœur, pas de bonheur la cause, Nuit nuits d'amour à plus venir, Un grand bonheur qui prend sa place Des ennuis, des chagrins s'effazent Heureux, heureux en mourir Quand il me prend dans ses bras Il me parle tout bas Je vois la vie en rond
0: Now, I know I said earlier that I wanted to um, kind of build this up a little bit, I guess, or uh, that I really kind of want to just go back a month or so but in reality what I want to do is backtrack just a little bit. Now after the Panay incident in 1937 the Japanese were able to extend their control in northern China and take more and more areas of the Chinese coast and slowly the United States began working against the Japanese. Now the first move came when President Roosevelt had a Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Morgenthau, make a 25 million dollar loan to Chiang Kai-shek. It was not a massive move But it did indicate that the Americans were at least interested in bolstering the Chinese opposition to the Japanese Empire. By 1939, things began to get interesting. It appeared that perhaps the Western powers were withdrawing from Asia, at least by one um, analysis. Now, this was because Britain, preoccupied with events in Europe, recognized Japan's special position in China, which included acknowledging their responsibility for law and order in the areas occupied by the Japanese military. So here's where it gets interesting. There was at least some popular sentiment for the United States to do more to halt Japanese aggression. In the summer of 1939, Roosevelt did just that. He sent out the necessary six month notice of the possible abrogation of what was known at that point as the Treaty of Commerce and Navigation of 1911. This agreement had regulated trade between the United States and Japan for decades. Now how important was trade? Well, in 1938, the United States supplied Japan with 44% of its imports, including items like automobiles, machinery, copper, oil, iron, and steel. Ending the treaty did not necessarily mean trade would stop. It did, however, mean that it was on a more of a like day-to-day basis, I guess is what you could say, as it had been deprived of its legal protection. Perhaps even more importantly, this allowed the United States to curtail Japanese purchasing of silver and gold, their chief source of foreign exchange and essential to the economic life of the Japanese empire and its war machine. Now in six months, in January 1940, the Americans were free to either limit or terminate exports to Japan and could even go so far as to impose economic sanctions. Roosevelt and his advisors were well aware of the fact that the Japanese empire and its war machine relied upon American oil and scrap metal. Now, according to historian Robert Dalek, the American move to try and curb Japanese aggression acted as an encouragement to London. It encouraged them to be firm with Tokyo and even helped to raise Chinese morale. In Japan, it worried the leadership, who now feared that verbal protests could turn into actual sanctions. However, the Japanese did not weaken their determination to create an empire known as the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere. The Japanese, instead, pressured the British and the French to leave China altogether, and, in an attempt to smooth over any difficulties with the Americans, assured U.S. diplomats that as soon as the China incident, as they termed it, was over, the open-door policy in China would resume, and everyone, including the Chinese, would benefit from Japanese imperialism. The Americans, however, did not believe this. In their mind, China was to be a vassal of the Japanese and their empire would benefit no one except Japan. As for Roosevelt's policies in regard to Japan, a Gallup poll at that time showed the public approved by a 4 to 1 margin. Another poll showed three quarters of Americans wanted a Chinese victory. However, don't be fooled. Only 12% of poll takers wanted to risk war over this matter. One America First Committee member said it best when he said, We sympathize with China, but we must not plunge America into war sentimental reasons, end quote. Now, when it came to China and Japan, at this point, generally speaking, Americans were be- at best aloof. Indeed, in the spring of 1941, opinion polls, as we kind of mentioned a little while ago, showed that more than 80% of the people surveyed were against the U.S. becoming involved in the war in Asia. Sure, they wanted to see a victory by China, but they didn't feel it was uh, important for them to risk war, as I just mentioned. But why? Well, Historian Justice Donesk and John Wiltz both point to several factors, especially among anti imperialists. First, most Americans viewed this as an Asiatic question. They believed the outcome didn't affect the Western Hemisphere. Secondly, the anti imperialists felt the United States had no vital interests in Asia that were worth going to war over. Third, some Americans had a low opinion of China, pointing to communist influence and the dictatorial nature of the Chiang Kai shek regime. Fourth, at this point Japan presented no threat militarily to the United States. One anti-imperialist senator noted, quote, I suppose she is going to fly her big tanks over the Canadian Rockies. Or if she can't fly them over, she'll outfit all of the Japanese soldiers with snowshoes so they can climb over the mountains in the wintertime and get at us in that way, end quote. Needless to say, none of that was going to happen. Now fifth, these same people noted that an invasion of Japan was impossible. Possessing submarines, airplanes, and armies in abundance, it would take years of bloody fighting just to get into range for an invasion. Even the idea of a Japanese invasion of the Philippines did not change the minds of some. I didn't mention it in the previous episodes, but in 1934, Congress passed a bill that targeted 1946 as the year for Philippine independence. This would include the removal of American military uh, posts and negotiations over naval bases. But would the United States continue to act as an imperial power in that region? I doubt it. The bean counters noted it cost the United States $3 for every $1 in benefit. You uh, you also had the anti-imperialists who noted Asia was simply a playground for foreign imperialists and argued the United States had no business becoming the bankruptcy receiver of European colonial possessions. The Dutch had suppressed the natives in their East Indian colony, and the French had shot enemies rebels by the hundreds. When it came to Hong Kong, Malaya, and even India, the New York Daily News noted the British had no more historic or racial right to be in any of these places than the Germans had to be in France. Now I should mention that with uh, all that being said, public opinion by the summer of 1941 was beginning to turn. As we've seen time and time again, Heck, just in the post-9-11 years, the American media loves to beat the drums of war. The media and the administration of FDR were certainly not blowing the pipes of peace. At least one historian notes that American radio, films, newsreels, and major newspapers were all overwhelmingly pro-British and working hard to get the United States involved in the war. Alright, let's take a moment to tell you about my favorite product and the company that produces them. Yes, I'm talking about Fablebeard Company, the official products, or beard products at least, of the American History Podcast. It's the best time of the year, the holiday season, and when it comes to scents, no one, and I mean no one, outdoes Fable Beard Company. Christmas time means limited edition holiday scents, and they have a totally awesome lineup for you this year. These include the Gingerbread Man, my favorite, or one of my favorites, Jack Frost, The Claws, another great one, The Ugly Sweater Guy, and new this year, The Caroler. I mean, is it really Christmas time without Christmas carols? This product has a fantastic scent profile. It's the perfect blend of cinnamon bread pudding, sprinkled nutmeg, iced frosting, and... Let me start that last part again there, Chris. Iced frosting... God damn it. Iced frosting and fresh raisins. It comes in an oil, beard butter, and beard co-wash. You really need to check these scents out before they disappear. And they do disappear. Remember... Babel also has some amazing full-spectrum CBD beard products, including one of my all-time favorites, the Baker. This comes in beard oil, butter, and even co-wash. Each product comes with full-spectrum cannabinoids to help with hair growth and strength. Each item contains 50 milligrams of CO2-expressed full-spectrum oil. I can tell you from personal experience, my beard has never been softer. This one has a scent profile of fresh... uh, it! let me start that sentence again. This one has a scent profile of fresh baked pastry, warm vanilla sugar, and just a hint of cinnamon spice. Head over to FableBeardCompany.com and load up on the perfect gift for the beard man in your life. And, as always, remember to use coupon code SEAN15 for 15% off each and every order. I know you're going to love these products just as much as I do. Okay, let's get back to the program. Now, in July 1940, a momentous event took place in Japan, one that perhaps placed it on a collision course with the United States. The army evicted the government, and a new regime came to power. Led by Prince Konoya Fum- Fumimaro, God, I hope I didn't destroy that too much, who had once been prime minister, it also included Matsuoko Yosuku, the new foreign minister, and General Hideki Tojo. The new regime immediately set out its policy firmness towards the United States, alliance with Nazi Germany, and an end to fighting in China, as well as a warming of relations with the Soviet Union. The fact that the Japanese had increased their purchases of aviation fuel and lubricants worried the Americans. Were they gearing up for an invasion of Southeast Asia, or were the Japanese readying themselves for a war against the United States? Either way, the Roosevelt administration decided it was time to ramp up its preparations. On July 2nd, 1940, He, being the president, signed the National Defense Act, a bill that allowed the president to declare certain items vital to the national defense and thus eligible for export, only with government approval. Almost immediately, FDR blocked the sale of high-octane fuels and top-grade scrap metal um, to Japan. He cited the fact that the United States' own defense required renewed efforts to stockpile strategic materials. But the Japanese were not impressed. In the end, this led to pressure by the Japanese to sever ties between the Netherlands and their East Indies colonies, as well as an attempt to squeeze concessions out of Indochina. Then, in September 1940, Japan signed the Tripartite Pact. The agreement recognized Japanese supremacy in East Asia and German-Italian supremacy in Europe. All pledged mutual aid and support if any one nation were attacked by a power that was not at that point involved in the conflicts in Europe and Asia. This was designed to target one nation, the United States. The idea was to try and isolate the Americans. Interestingly, many of the pro-diplomacy or anti-imperialist camp believed the United States had reaped what it had sown. In their mind, it was a natural response to, quote, denunciation, chastisement, embargo, boycott, threat, and an alleged moral superiority, end quote. They were hoping against hope that the U.S. might return permanently to a non-interventionist foreign policy advocated by the Founders. The reality was that both Japan and the U.S. were hurtling towards a cataclysmic showdown in the Pacific. Now, in the meantime, both sides tried to at least keep up the appearances of negotiating. None of their overtures amounted to any actual agreement. There was too much distrust on both sides. Cordell Hull, the Secretary of State, made it quite clear that he believed the Japanese were guilty of aggression, treaty breaking, and the violation of the idea of self-determination over the previous decade. Thus, in the middle of March, the Japanese foreign minister headed to first Moscow and then Berlin. His objective was to get the Soviets to sign a non-aggression pact with the Japanese empire. He went to Berlin to notify his Axis allies of his goals. The Germans, for their part, were hoping the Japanese would join the war against the Soviets, set to begin in just a few months. However, they avoided telling their Japanese allies of their plans out of a fear that the talkative foreign minister might let it leak. be that as it may, the Russians had caught wind of what the Germans were up to, and they were interested in securing their eastern flank. This is why in April 1941, when Matsuko returned to, uh, to Moscow, the Soviets agreed to a non-aggression pact with Japan, one which pledged neutrality and peaceful relations as well as territorial respect. Then on June 22, 1941, the German armies invaded the Soviet Union. Now this set off a debate within the Japanese cabinet. Should they declare war on the USSR? The terms of the Axis Agreement did not obligate Japan to come in on the side of the Nazis, since Germany had invaded Russia. Furthermore, their treaty with Russia obligated the Japanese to respect Russian territory. An invasion of the Soviet Far East would obligate the Japanese to divert men and materiel from the Chinese war, and thus postpone a conclusion to that conflict. And in the Japanese minds, they figured the Germans would easily defeat the Russians anyway. So what was the point? Then, with the Russian collapse, surely the British would need to finally make peace with Germany. With the British out of the war, the Americans would then have to come to terms with the axis and in the end that would mean the japanese were masters of asia hence in july 1941 the japanese leadership met to chart the way forward the conference included emperor hirohito and the japanese decided not to join the war against the soviets the germans were clearly winning but with stalin out of sight and russian armies in full retreat japan would continue to simply concentrate on southeast asia and in a few weeks complete their takeover of Indochina. Then pressure would be applied to Thailand and even on Malaya and the Dutch Indies. If the Americans or British interfered, the result would be war. Now on the other hand, the Americans by the fall of 1940 had broken Japan's highest diplomatic code, known in some circles as the Purple Cipher. And the code-breaking machine, or at least it's, it's the results of what it, it dished out, was known as magic, and I'll explain that in a little bit. Uh, but it told the Americans that the Japanese were focused on Southeast Asia. The problem for the Roosevelt government was how to respond. They couldn't just sit by while the Japanese took over Indochina and Thailand, but the first concern in their minds was Europe. Most American officials believed the United States could not stand up to the Nazis in Europe and fight a war with Japan and the Pacific at the same time. FDR was now ready to place what amounted to a trade embargo on the Japanese, But before issuing the order, he gave diplomacy one more chance, or at least he gave the appearance of giving diplomacy a chance. The president again rejected the Japanese ambassador's argument that the move by their forces to the south was intended to prevent encirclement by an Anglo-American Dutch combine. FDR promised that if Japan gave up the present southward drive, he would do everything to neutralize the issue of Indochina. Needless to say, nothing came of this and on the evening of July 25th, the United States issued a freezing order. The next day, both the British government and the Dominions issued their own financial restrictions on Japan. They were joined in these actions by the Dutch government in exile operating out of London. War was now all but inevitable, and so Roosevelt strengthened the American military in the Pacific by placing the armed forces of the Philippines under American command. While the new economic restraints made American anti-interventionists nervous, the already hurting Japanese economy was hit even harder. Already, the nation was short of rice, tin, bauxite, nickel, and even rubber. Now, with an oil embargo, the country's supply of oil to fuel the Navy was estimated at enough to last 18 months. The army was said to have enough for 12 months. At least one historian makes the argument that the decision to place an economic embargo backfired on the United States. The Japanese had not fully decided to advance into Southeast Asia. There was no master plan at this point. In fact, that the, the fact that the United States had placed an economic embargo on the country did have one major effect. It unified the normally divided Japanese armed forces. By August, Japanese nerves were taut. The oil embargo was hurting. 60% of the oil imported to Japan came from the United States. This embargo was forcing them to dip into their limited reserves. To make matters worse, the British were reinforcing Singapore, and the Americans had sent a squadron of B-17 bombers to the Philippines. To say the Japanese were living on borrowed time would be an understatement. This led to a conference which was held in early September in Japan. The militants were determined to put plans for war with the United States into motion, It was deciding at this meeting that if no diplomatic settlement was reached with the United States by October 15th, the only way forward was war with the Americans, British, and Dutch, the ABD powers. The Japanese military promised that they could conclude war in the South within six months, thus freeing up valuable forces for the more significant fight, the war with the Americans. However, the emperor was not convinced. He noted that this was the same promise they made about the war in China, back in 1937. And four years later, that conflict was no closer to being resolved. Quote, if you call the Chinese hinterland vast, would you not describe the Pacific as even more immense? With what confidence do you say three months? End quote. What convinced Hirohito to give his approval to the plan was the Navy chief compared the plan to drastic surgery designed to save a patient's life. Sure, the surgery could kill him, but he would surely die without it. And We all know that diplomacy did not win out in the end. By mid-October, Konoye had failed to secure a peace with the Americans, and he and his cabinet resigned. The new prime minister was General Tojo. While the emperor asked him to form a new government, he also asked to continue to pursue a peaceful solution. Indeed, Hirohito again showed his tendency to move back and forth. He issued an imperial command to the new prime minister to wipe the slate clean, review all previous decisions, and work towards a peaceful solution. He was saying that the September conference was non-binding. Now, Tojo did as he was bid, but a second conference held early in November um, is what set the plans forward. To appease the emperor, the Tojo government would continue to play the diplomatic game. However, if by November 25th, there had been no breakthrough, he would then ask the emperor to sanction an attack. Needless to say, the diplomatic breakthrough never came. Both sides knew this meant war, but only one was prepared to initiate combat. Now, earlier on November 22nd, Japanese Admiral Chiuchi Nagumo gathered his staff for an intelligence briefing on board the Akagi. The briefing included information on the general disposition of the U.S. Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor, including its habit of returning to port on the weekends. When the briefing was concluded, Nagumo expressed deep worry about four major areas. First, the possibility of being discovered en route or in the target area before the attack. Second, the state of the enemy's alertness on Oahu. Third, was the chance of finding the U.S. fleet, not in Pearl Harbor. And the fourth, the possibility of enemy retaliation. Furthermore, there was a distinct lack of information about the American carriers. Lieutenant Commander Aijiro Suzuki, the officer delivering the briefing, admitted they had little intelligence on the carriers or their locations. The Japanese believed there were three at Pearl Harbor, but they were not sure. Now this was the biggest headache for the Japanese, and it was one they'd never solve. What would they do if the flattops weren't in port? Should they search for them? Call off the attack? In the end, the carriers were, in fact, not at Pearl Harbor the morning of the attack, and the fact they did survive would come to hunt the Japanese military in the coming years. In the end, the Japanese decided the attack would go on as planned, whether or not the carriers were home on December 7th. So now let's talk for a minute about the Japanese plans. I'm not going to get into the minutiae of it, but I do want to note that not everyone thought it was a good idea to strike out at the Americans. Rear Admiral Ryunsuke Kusaka, Nagumo's chief of staff, from the outset in the spring of 1941, thought the plan had serious flaws. Why sail out and into the face of the enemy? Sometimes when we read about these events, authors kind of brush over this and present the Japanese as all being on the same page. But the fact is, nothing could be further from the truth. Now at the same time that all of this was going on, the U.S. government was not just sitting around. On November 1st and 2nd, meetings were held at the State Department to discuss the situation in the Far East. The folks at Foggy Bottom decided to have the British send some planes to Thailand and that the Japanese should be warned against going into Siberia. However, a more interesting meeting was held on November 3rd, 1941. This was a meeting of the Joint Board of the Army and Navy. Fifteen top Army and Navy officers were at this meeting, for which deliberations were kept confidential. They only came to light after the war, thanks to the Joint Congressional Committee on the investigation of the Pearl Harbor attack. The Chief of Naval Operations, the CNO, reviewed the situation in the Pacific and noted that a decision had been made several months previous, quote, to make the major effort in the Atlantic and if forced to fight in the Pacific, to engage in a limited offensive effort, end quote, in that theater. This sentiment was similar to the U.S.-British Staff Conversations report of March 27, 1941. In this report, Admiral Ingersoll, the Assistant Chief of Naval Operations, noted that a full-on effort in the Pacific would affect the ability of the United States to aid Britain. He noted that even if the entire U.S. fleet were sent to the Pacific, there were no repair facilities in Manila or Singapore. More importantly, at least to me, is the fact that Ingersoll then went on to analyze the possibility of a Japanese attack. Quote, Japan is capable of launching an attack in five directions, against Russia, the Philippines, into Yunnan, Thailand, and against Malaya. End quote. Now, if the Japanese hit out at either the Philippines or the British or Dutch positions, he recommended the U.S. attempt to resist the attack. If, however, the Japanese should hit out at Siberia, Thailand, or China, then he felt the Americans should stay out of it. Army General George C. Marshall was also at this meeting on November 3rd. He said he had information that the Japanese would decide by November 5th on what action to take. He believed that the United States should continue to build up forces in the Pacific while at the same time warning the Japanese against further action. In his opinion, by mid-December, the Army would have enough forces in the Philippines to deter Japanese aggression. However, until the Americans had enough to back up their statements, he was of the opinion it best not to antagonize them. What came out of this meeting is that the Joint Board adopted the position of Admiral Ingersoll. It was against three things. First, the issuing of any ultimatum to Japan. Second, against military action against Japan if she moved into Yunnan. And third, against the idea of supporting Chiang Kai-shek with the American military forces. Finally, the memorandum recommended the State Department should attempt to postpone hostilities with Japan as long as possible. Now, one of the most fascinating aspects of all of this, at least in my mind, was the story of how the U.S. broke the Japanese Code just prior to the Battle of Midway. However, that whole narrative leaves off several important aspects of the entire story. Most people aren't aware of it, but the Americans had an advantage over the Japanese as early as 1922 and the uh, Washington Naval Conference because it was reading the secret instructions the government was issuing to their diplomats. Now, certainly things had changed by 1941 for both sides. The Japanese codes were more complicated and had changed. For the Americans, the army in 1930 had established its signal intelligence service, and the Navy had an intelligence office, the OP20G. By 1940, both agencies were involved in analyzing and trying to break Japanese codes. Now here's the interesting part. I know it's all interesting, but you know what I mean. By late 1941, almost two years, um, after almost two years, I should say, the Army and Navy had succeeded in breaking Japan's diplomatic code. They could duplicate the operations of the Japanese machines, including transpositional changes, which the Japanese thought would Stymie would be codebreakers. The development of the machine, known as Purple, seemed almost like a miracle, so the intelligence derived from it was codenamed magic. So much importance was placed on this information that only 12 copies of each translated magic intercept were made. The worst thing that could happen was for the fact that the Americans could read the Japanese code to get out. If such a thing were to happen, the Japanese would change their code, and the United States would be back to square one. Before long, the Americans became so good at decoding and translating messages that the American Secretary of State, Cordell Hall, had the message in his hand before he even met up with the Japanese ambassadors. In other words, American officials in Washington had a continuous flow of precise information directly from the Japanese government itself. Now having said that, not everything was communicated by the officials in Japan to their representatives abroad. Remember, there was still a lot that was not known. And even at this point, the Japanese were not 100% sure that they were going to go forward and attack the United States. Now on November 19th and 20th, Japanese ambassadors, and I'm going to mess this up, Kichi Saburo Nomura and Saburo Kurusu, the special envoy to Washington, renewed their discussions with Hull. Noting that they were awaiting instruction from Tokyo, they told Hull Japan was being squeezed economically by the American embargo and wanted a fast settlement. Once they had received their instructions, they returned to Hull and said, quote, the Japanese government was clearly desirous of peace and was trying to show this by relieving the pressure on Thailand. Furthermore, Japan, anxious to resume trade, offered to restrict military operations. Until all disputes could be resolved, Nomura proposed a working arrangement made up of five points. First, the governments of both nations would agree not to make any armed advances into Southeast Asia or the Pacific, or the South Pacific, I should say, excepting French Indochina, where Japanese troops were already deployed. Second, the Japanese government would withdraw from Indochina once peace was established in the Pacific. And in the meantime, they agreed to shift those forces from the southern portion to the northern regions of Indochina. Third, both would cooperate in the Netherlands' East Indies to acquire various goods and commodities they needed. Fourth, both Japan and the United States would work to restore pre-embargo commercial relations to the United, and the United States would supply Japan with the required quantity of oil needed. And finally, the Americans would refrain from actions that were prejudicial to the restoration of peace between Japan and and China. Now there was an American counter-proposal, but before it was given to the Japanese, Secretary Hull met with the British and Australian ambassadors, as well as the Dutch minister and the Chinese ambassador. He outlined that his counter would be an attempt to essentially contain Japan and protect China. Interestingly, the British, Australians, and Dutch were pleased, but the Chinese ambassador was disturbed by this. Now, for their part, the Japanese were given a deadline of November 25th, after which things would automatically happen. Given that deadline on November 5th, they were then notified on November 22nd that they had four more days until November 29th and should do their best to bring about a resolution to the situation. Here's what the Japanese government told their ambassadors. Quote, There are reasons beyond your ability to guess why we wanted to settle the Japanese-American relations by the 25th. But if within the next three or four days, you can finish your conversations with the Americans, if the signing can be completed by the 29th, if the pertinent notes can be exchanged, if we can get an understanding with Great Britain and the Netherlands, and, in short, if everything can be finished, we have decided to wait until that date, end quote. But after that, as they said, things would begin to happen automatically. On the afternoon of November 24th, the Chief of Naval Naval Operations, Admiral Stark, issued a circular message to his field commanders on the Pacific Rim in the Philippines, Hawaii, um, Panama, San Diego, San Francisco, and Seattle. In this memo, the Admiral noted that the chance of a favorable outcome was slim. Thus, a, quote, surprise aggressive movement in any direction, including attack on the Philippines or Guam, is a possibility, end quote. After receiving this message, Admiral Husband Kimmel consulted with his Army counterpart, General Short. While they didn't deny the Japanese could strike Pearl Harbor, they believed it unlikely that Hawaii would be the target of a Japanese attack. Their reasoning Japan would not commit such a blunder, as a surprise attack on American territory would irrevocably unite the Americans in a war that would surely follow. By late November, the situation was dire and allies were starting to hear rumors that the U.S. and Japan had ended negotiations. Apparently, these rumors came from the nationalist Chinese government, but at this point they were false. Indeed, on Sunday, November 30th, the U.S. Navy decoded and translated cable number 857 from Tokyo. This message instructed the Japanese ambassadors in Washington to, quote, make one more attempt verbally. The United States government has always taken a fair and judicial position The imperial government is at a loss to understand why it has now taken the attitude that the new proposals we have made cannot be made the basis of discussion, but instead has made new proposals which ignore actual conditions in East Asia and would greatly injure the prestige of the imperial government. Finally, the Japanese ambassadors were told specifically to do nothing that could lead to a breaking off of negotiations. Now, at the same time, all of this was taking place. There was a hint of what was coming. Japanese Prime Minister Tojo delivered an inflammatory speech on November 30th. The Japanese leader criticized both the Americans and the British and noted that, quote, the exploitation of the Asiatics by Americans must be purged with vengeance, end quote. The Japanese press, as quoted by the U.S. ambassador in Tokyo, Joseph Grew, said, quote, many countries are indulging in actions hostile to us. The fact that Chiang Kai-shek is dancing to the tune of Britain, America, and communism is only due to the desire of Britain and the United States to fish in the troubled waters of East Asia by pitting the East Asiatic peoples against each other. For the honor and pride of mankind, we must purge this sort of practice from East Asia with a vengeance, Needless to say, the Japanese in Washington, D.C., I explained this away. But the fact remains it was pretty obvious the tone out of Tokyo was starting to change. A meeting was held on the 1st of December with Hull, who immediately mentioned Tojo's bellicose utterances. Again, nothing came of this meeting, with Japanese representatives denying Hull's linkage of their actions to those of Hitler in Europe. But not only was the tone of the Japanese government in Tokyo growing more belligerent, their actions on the ground were as well. Naval intelligence was seriously concerned by the massive buildup of Japanese military assets in Indochina. As it is, Hull and his associates believed as early as November 25th that the Japanese were not truly interested in negotiating, but were simply stalling for time. Of course, the same could be said for the United States, but be that as it may, there was mounting evidence that the Japanese were preparing for offensive military action. One example is a memorandum, taken to Admiral Theodore Wilkinson, the Director of Naval Intelligence, on the morning of December 1st. This memo reported Japanese transports were moving in large numbers from Shanghai to Indochina, and they were loaded with veteran troops. Between, quote, 21 to 26 November, 20,000 troops were landed at Saigon and 4,000 at Haiphong, with 6,000 troops already there sent south to Saigon and Cambodia by rail. All wharves and docks at Haiphong and Saigon are reported crowded with Japanese transports unloading supplies and men, end quote. Reports indicated that approximately 100,000 troops were now stationed in Indochina. Admiral Wilkinson had an appointment to see the CNO at noon. Here he reported that the Japanese fleet was ready for action. It had been recalled home, repaired, and was ready to go. Furthermore, call signs and frequency allocations had been changed, thus indicating something was afoot. In testimony before Congress, Wilkinson later said that based on the evidence they had at the time, they, the Navy, had concluded that the Japanese, quote, were contemplating an early attack primarily directed at Thailand, Burma, and the Malaya Peninsula, end quote. It was at this meeting with Stark that both Wilkinson and Arthur H. McCollum, the officer in charge of the Far Eastern Section of the Office of Naval Intelligence, urged Stark to dispatch a warning to the fleet. Stark assured both men that such a message had been sent out on November 27th, and it most certainly included the phrase, quote, this is a war warning, end quote. Now, of course, as we know, negotiations did not end fruitfully, and Japan made the fateful decision to go ahead with the attack, or the plan to attack the U.S. Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. The aircraft carriers they had hoped they would find at anchor were in fact at sea. So while the Japanese were successful in crippling the Pacific fleet, it was not the knockout blow they had hoped to land. Instead of bringing the Americans to their senses and back to the negotiating table, the attack had the opposite effect. On December 8, 1941, President Roosevelt delivered a speech to a joint session of Congress. Here's that speech. Now I want to note one thing. FDR says ships were torpedoed between San Francisco and Hawaii that is false. I don't know if he was given false information or what, but that is not correct. In any event, the United States was now at war with Japan. If you're enjoying the show, please take a minute to head over to iTunes and give us a five-star rating. It really does help others find us. If you have a moment or two, give us a two-sentence review. Again, five-star reviews help other folks to find the show. Okay, so until next time, I'm Sean, and you've been listening to Episode 4 of the American History Podcast. Have a great day.
1: a thing ...wife your sweetheart? Instead of wondering... Who Shut it off like oh, oh, uh, uh, oh, I guess. i your fault.